Okay, today is January the 3rd, and we are doing, oh, question? Oh, oh, is that, is that better? Oh, good, okay. Today's January the 3rd, and we are doing Lesson 15 in Disciple, which is called Suffering, and listening to that microphone noise is going to make you suffer. Um, we will turn to page 106 for prayer, and then we will just hop right into a really exciting book. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in trouble. My eyes are tired from so much crying. I am completely worn out. I'm exhausted by sorrow, and weeping has shortened my life. I am weak from all my troubles. Even my bones are wasting away. Amen. Isn't that an interesting prayer? Okay. Uh, well, if uh, Paul and Winnie, if you want to, there's chairs here. I could probably get Larry and Mona to scoot one way or the other if you want to sit together. Okay. I know there's lots of things that you probably want to talk about. If it's okay, I'd like to tell you how people tend to look at this book. This is the first time in, in a few weeks, actually, that we have read the whole book, right? Which is interesting, because a lot of times we just got snippets. And, and this one, they decided we should read the whole thing of in our, in our survey. Um, but it's helpful to say maybe that most scholars will tell you the book, of course, wasn't written in its present form in one go. And you probably figured that out particularly when you got to these chapters here, 32 through 37, all of a sudden there's a fourth guy. Where did he come from? And wow, he says the same thing they've been saying. <laughs> right? so, so why is that there? So what most scholars will tell you is that parts of this book are just darn old. I mean really old. Which parts? Chapters 1, 2, and 42, the narrative. So the narrative would be the oldest part to this story, not just because of things like diction and syntax, but you'll notice in the narrative part, Job is wealthy, but he has no money. That's because he is from a time that predates a monetary economy. He just has stuff. The other clue has to do with this little signifier uh, that happens in the narrative, um, B'nai Elohim, which is translated into the sons of God, although it may be in your version translated into something like the servants of God or the angels. But this is a very old expression I'll return to in a second. And then, of course, this guy right here uh, actually makes the book very old and more about him in a bit. So most people think all that happened in the earliest take was the narrative. And then later, and I just put some approximate dates, but they're just approximate. I mean, there's really no precision here. Then later comes the narrative between Job and the three friends. And that represents wisdom. Kind of like we talked about two weeks ago, it, it, this, this is wisdom, wisdom literature. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's really what this is, is, is um, trying to do. And interestingly enough, right, the friends don't know what you know. You know that Job is completely innocent. They don't know that because they didn't read those first two chapters. <laughs> so you're the, you know, the, the narrators enlightened you and not them. That's how you know that what they're saying is, is not good. Uh, this response from Elihu, again, if you're wondering why it's there, most people say that, well, probably the final editor of the book 
thought that Job was like beating the friends at the argument, and that wasn't a good thing, <laughs> right? Because Job's like accusing God of not being just, so that's not a good way to leave it. So, so he kind of hashed down his perspective again so that he could have the last word. I, I don't know, but what I do know is his thing makes no sense in the book. It just, it just not makes no sense. He just comes out of nowhere, right? Again, doesn't say any new material. Um, God uh, talking out of the whirlwind probably related to this time as the friends. Uh, so, so what you're seeing is that there's probably at least 500 years uh, of composition into, into Job. People have been thinking about this, why do bad things happen to good people for a really a long time? You know, like we're not new to thinking about that. And, uh, and they have lots of answers. And what do you know, some of them are satisfactory and some aren't. Anybody completely satisfied with reading the book of Job? Anybody figure out why we suffer? <laughs> Anybody think Job's patient? Yeah, because you know there's this phrase, right? He or she has the patience of Job. Actually, Job sort of says, I don't have a lot of time. God needs to hurry up. I'm going to die any day. So like, <laughs> I need the answer. So actually, like patience of Job, kind of a funny thing to have. You really don't want that kind of patience. Um, okay, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing that, you know, I just can't keep away from. Now, you know, you can always tell me to shush or let's move on. And I don't want to bog down on this too much. But this is just kind of important um, part of the setting. Um, this happens in the land of Uz or Uz. Nobody knows where that is. It's not Israel, just to let you know. I mean, you can read a map book and it will show you where it is, and it's wrong. Because no, no one knows where that is or if it's even real. Um, this is happening outside the people. Um, and then there's this guy here. <sighs> See, the devil's just active in the Hebrew Bible, but he's, but he's not the devil. And this is really important. There's a sidebar in your notebook. Um, at this time in, in ancient Israel, any of these times, um, uh, people didn't believe in a red, a red horn, pitchfork carrying, spade tail sort of thing. Remember what we've been reading. People believe that all things, good and or evil, come from God. And we tend not to think that way. And the reason we tend not to think that way is because when Cyrus the Great conquered um, Babylon in the year 540, he introduced all people who came into contact with him with the religion Zoroastrianism, which is actually extremely influential in world history, even though there are very few adherents today. Zoroastrianism has this idea that there are two oppositional forces in the universe, good and evil, and they're fighting it out sort of every day. And the people who are on the good side are the sons of light, the Dead Sea Scrolls use this too, and the people on the other side are the sons of darkness. Now it turns out that in Zoroastrianism, it's really clear that the chief god, Ahura Mazda, is going to win. It's never in question the fate of the cosmos. Ahura Mazda is good and is going to win, However, there's, there, there are this, there's this duality in the universe sort of fighting it out. Um, when Jewish people were exposed to that, they thought that was a really helpful way to understanding things because it's really hard to think that God is really good and then does really bad stuff. So they did something called syncretism, but really slowly. Like when you see the word Satan in the New Testament, it's really not clear whether that refers to the devil like we have an understanding of. Most of our understanding of the devil actually comes from 
Dante Alighieri, if you've read um, Par uh, no, uh, Inferno, and even more than that is from John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost. So, so most of our thinking about hell and the devil and demons is Miltonian, not biblical. Uh, backtracking to this word, in, in Job, um, we start out that God is talking to the sons of God. That's literally the word in Hebrew, the B'nai Elohim. The Jewish people uh, tell you it's really old because in the, in the original view, there's like the father deity and there's other deities. Now, you know what this looks like because you learned Greek mythology when you were in middle school. Right? There's, there's Aphrodite, who's the goddess of love, and there's Ares, who's the god of war, and then there's the father deity, Zeus. And, and, and just to show how well you, you know this and people, people know it, when the Romans took over the, 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 the Greek uh, city-states, they adopted the Greek gods and they just changed their names to the planets, right? So Ares became Mars and Aphrodite became Venus. And it's really tempting to say, oh, they just called Zeus Jupiter. Actually, Jupiter is a funny corruption. When you take the word Zeus and add the word pater, which means father, and you say that Zeus pater, you get Jupiter. So the planet is not the etymology uh, for Jupiter. Zeus pater is the correct etymology for that, that one particular word, because even in Rome adopted him as the father figure of the pantheon. So this phrase that shows up in chapter one is reminiscent from old, old days where there was polytheism. And these are literally the sons of God. It doesn't mean God's children, it means the gods or the demigods above the father God. I don't know if that makes sense. You may say, Mike, that did not appear in my Bible. Some translators don't translate that. <laughs> they, they write messengers or angels because they're not comfortable with it. But you should know in Hebrew that's how, it, that's how it reads and that's the origin. And among them is this person or thing who's called Satan. It's, it's annoying to hear that, isn't it? Because we say Satan. But, but in Hebrew, the word is pronounced Satan, and it's important to know that in Job, he's... He's not just called Satan, he's called the Satan. Uh, and, and this is an interesting thing. Um, this is the word David in Hebrew, it's a proper name. It means beloved. So you know it's King David when you see it. Now if you put the word the, the definite article in front of it, if you put ha-dod or ha-david, it means the beloved. Well, that could be anybody that you love. The beloved is probably your spouse and your child. When you take the article away, it becomes a proper name. Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible does Satan appear without the definite article. So it's always the, and Satan just means accuser. So, so this isn't Satan, the insidious force of evil. This is one of the sons of God who goes around accusing people. What would be the function of that? Well, you know, in a kingly court, you've got the counselor of the exchequer, the minister of the interior, the chief prosecuting attorney, also called the DA. So the DA comes to God one day and says, or God actually says, look at Job, nobody like him. Nobody in the whole wide world. He loves me. And 
the Satan says, well, of course he does. You, you give him everything. Take that stuff away and see if he still loves you. And that's an interesting thing, right? It tells us a couple of things. One is, we believe that God is omniscient and knows everything. They didn't believe that. That's a Greek idea, not a Hebrew one. So, so there's merit for God testing this claim. The God we believe in would already know the answer. <laughs> this God might not. Does that make sense when saying? The other thing this does, I think, is it, it sets up a really interesting question that's not just about suffering and justice. It's a question that perhaps you've wondered about in preparation for marriage or even during marriage. How do I know that my spouse loves me for who I am instead of for what I do for them? This is a really good question. How do you know someone loves you? Well, I suppose if you took all the benefits you gave away, and in fact were difficult to be around, and they still clung to you, that might be a clue. Please notice, that's what happens in the book. <laughs> it's not just a question about justice. This is a fundamental human question about, am I loved for who I am or for what I do? And how do you prove love for somebody? I mean, that's, this, is a, this is a wisdom question. Does anybody have a good answer? How you really know you're loved? My answer is I choose to believe it. <laughs> but I don't know. But I don't know. And I, and I choose to believe. There are some days where my belief is lower than others <laughs> in multiple relationships, you know? I mean, again, I just let this book do more than, than, what, than, than just suffering. This is a really fundamental uh, human question. And uh, so anyway, God says, well, you know, I'm actually really sure that Job loves me, so go ahead and take the stuff. Go ahead and take the stuff. And calamity happens, right? All the kids die in a house. All the stuff is stolen. And, um, and then Job sort of says this interesting thing. Uh, he says, shall we take the good from God and not the bad? So please notice, Job is saying bad stuff comes from God, not from the Satan, from God. And then in chapter 2, um, Job gets sores, and he actually does this really interesting thing that's, that's, he says, I'm going to shave my head and be naked and lie in the dust because I came in the world naked. I'm going to die soon. I'm going to back naked. But those are signs of repentance, shaving your head and laying down in the ashes. This Ash Wednesday, we still do that stuff. So, so it could be Job thinks he's done something wrong in the narrative. He, he could think that. His wife comes and says, in your translation, why do you persevere in your integrity? Just curse God and die. And Job replies, in your translation, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, what's interesting, and I don't want to bother you too much here, but there's not a word in Hebrew that means curse. There's not a word in the language. Hebrew has two words for blessing. One always means blessing, and the other one could mean blessing or it could mean curse. And the only way you can interpret it cursed is based on context clues. Now, let me give you an example, because we do this in English, especially in the South and in Texas. We say, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> and we also say, 
Well, bless your heart. <laughs> and the context clue is the tone and syncopation, right? And, and actually, both of those sounded pretty bad. I've had, I've blessed people's hearts in a good way, but uh, that's a real slippery slope, you know? So much so that Brene Brown was thinking about making a shirt that says, bless my heart and I'll kick your butt, which I, wish I thought was, that was cute. Okay, anyway. Um, so what's helpful to know is that the translators are making an interpretation. That happens every time, but let me give you an alternate translation that's just as viable linguistically. Why do you persevere in your integrity? Bless God and die. And Job's reply, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Cursed be the name of the Lord. You may say, Mike, why would you say something like that? <laughs> well, when I give things, I mean, when I get things, I like to be able to keep them, don't you? In fact, we have a really bad name. I don't think kids say this anymore. <laughs> when I was a kid, we had a really bad name for someone giving you a gift and taking it back. Right? We called them Indian givers. Now, I don't know if that means Native American givers or people from India. I don't know the answer to that, but I know it's not culturally appropriate to say anymore. But, you know, we sort of understand that a gift, once it's given, is for you to keep. And so somebody who gives gifts and takes them back, well, I don't know if I would bless that person's name or I'd curse it. So please know, we call these scenes in the narrative. Scenes. Where... Ooh, like meaning is really able to fold and go totally different ways. Maybe uh, Job's wife thinks that the best way to keep his integrity is to bless God and die, because if he keeps living, he, he'll say impious comments, which, by the way, he goes on to do. <laughs> okay, uh, that's the introduction. Is that okay? Any questions about that sort of stuff? Uh, maybe it's okay to say, just really fast, that um, even in the New Testament, really unclear whether um, you hear words like Satan, it's really unclear whether that's the red, the red, the red guy we think in. I mean, there is, in, in Revelation, which is the latest book in the New Testament, probably Satan's called the dragon, and the reign of the dragon's going to be over. But you know, there's something interesting about accusation, because that's what it means, ac accuser, right? Accusation. Um, Accusations really tend to separate people. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, uh, from one another and from God. And, and so perhaps the death of the dragon is also the death of the accusations that divide us. It's really unclear whether it's the spiritual force of wickedness or it's accusation out of control. Mike, yes, ma'am. Yeah, so, so mostly it comes from John Milton, and um, John Milton's reading a book that did not make it into the Bible called One Enoch, in which there are these, um, these sort of angels in heaven. And we read about this real gently in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. There is these, what well, do you know, they're called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. They look at the daughters of men, and they decide that they're going to marry them, or at least impregnate them. And that's where the heroes of old came from. And so, according to Enoch, that represented some rebellion going on against God. That here you've got these spiritual beings that are mating with mortal beings, and, and they're mixing things they shouldn't have mixed. So what happens to those beings, and by the way, the leader of that group is not called Satan, it's called Azazel, which means scapegoat. 
um, those are chained up under the earth to sort of stay. They're put in prison without parole. And, and interestingly enough, the Bible sort of believes in some of that mythology because when Jesus dies, according to Second Peter, he goes to the spirits that are imprisoned under the earth and he frees them. <laughs> he doesn't send them to hell. He frees them. There's sort of this interesting thing about the forgiveness that Jesus represents. It, Jesus doesn't condemn these, these spirits led by the Azazel. He lets them go. Now, again, where do we get where we are now with this stuff? Syncretism, Zoroastrianism, cultural influence. I mean, it's just a lot easier to think God's all good. The bad stuff comes from somebody else. That's easier, you know? Of course, then you get into problems. Because who made the bad things? Well, God made everything. Well, why did God make bad stuff? Because God wanted them to be good and they weren't. That's not satisfying, is it? No. I mean, when you really push on this stuff, it's just not satisfying. But somehow a red guy with horns has become more culturally satisfying to us. And I'm not sure why. Again, I think it's actually really helpful to think theologically about what happens when accusations get out of control. Imagine if the DA could prosecute everybody. It would no longer be helpful. Some of it's great. <laughs> Too much is not. Uh, demons, interestingly enough, this is another thing we've not done well. The word demon is a Greek word, daemonium, and it just means unclean spirit. It, it doesn't mean insidious force of evil that's also red with a spade tail and horns. I mean, again, a lot of this is mythology, not, not from the Bible. Am I saying that demons aren't real? No. I mean, I've met unclean spirits. I think you have too. Go to an AA meeting. You will meet some unclean spirits. Uh, talk to somebody who is unmedicated and dealing with things like borderline personality disorder and schizophrenia. You will meet an unclean spirit. Talk to somebody who's suffered domestic violence or been abused as a child. They didn't earn any of that stuff, but, but it's unclean spirit. I mean, now I think we're starting to have some alternate language that says, like, wow, like, your, your brain doesn't sort of link cause and effect, or, or you're, you, you don't have a secure attachment to your family and friends. You have an insecure attachment. I mean, those are new labels that we have to basically describe this concept, which is, like, there's something not right with you that, that you can't control. That sounds really bad, but this isn't about blaming. It's just about, it's about labeling things, right? Anybody met an unclean spirit before? Doesn't mean it was evil. Just wasn't right. Doesn't mean person deserved it. There's just something off, you know? There are a number. Maybe it's maybe worth letting you know that, that um, not in our prayer book and not in the book of, um, what's the other word? Extra feasts and fasts. Is it extraordinary services? I don't know. We, we as priests can't do it. There's a secret book called the Bishop's Book. You only get it when you're a bishop. And, and there is an exorcism rite. And, uh, of course, if you've met an unclean spirit before, you understand why people are drawn to that. I don't know if it works, friends. I mean, if it does, I need to go. <laughs> I need to go. You know, if it could work like that, 
wow, you know, what a gift. I don't think it works like that. I just, I don't. Well, we could. That'd be an interesting question. In fact, I invite someone other than myself to ask that question. <laughs> because I think that'd be, you know, think through it. You can do that if you want to. I mean, think, think how exciting it would be to be a bishop and get a real question. You know, I mean, oh, bishop, what's your favorite book of the Bible? You know, I think it'd be really great if you said, like, you ever done an exorcism and did it work? Did you bring the book? I could use one today. You know, I mean, I just think that would be delightful. I, surely a bishop would enjoy that. I would enjoy that if I were a bishop. That's about the only thing I'd enjoy if I were a bishop. Okay. Okay, hopefully I didn't kill this. Hopefully I didn't kill it. But, I, but I, do, I do think it's important to invest in it a little bit because the world I grew up in, which is, which is conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist Christianity, you can pick any one of those three labels and it's still true, sees the world at war between spiritual forces. And we talk about spiritual warfare. Biblically, there is no warfare. This is a created being. How could it possibly prevail against the creator? In fact, when we read the book of Revelation at the end, that's the message of the book. The conflict that we see is not real. There's no chance of evil winning. There's no chance. We'll get there at the end. It's actually a really good book, Revelation. It's, it's good. I mean, when we read it together, you're going, well, you may not like it. You'll like it more, promise. You'll like it more. Okay, uh, that's the Sedan, and that's the Sons of God, and that's the Beth. Scene set, we ready to go? What I'd like to do, if it's okay, is just sort of follow our friends along as they talk about things. Is that okay? The very first person who talked, and by the way, interrupt me at any point, because I really just want to give their, sort of their arguments, if that's okay, and we'll get somewhere or nowhere at the end. The very first person who talks is Job. Now, now notice they do something really, oh, also important. Job has seven sons, biblical number of perfection, that's the word Shabbat, Sabbath, and he's got three daughters, that's a good number. Three friends come and sit for seven days, right? So just again, these are like important numbers. That seven days of silence, Jewish people still do that. Theoretically, it's called a sitting Shabbat. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but the seven days after someone dies, you're just supposed to sit and cry. And when that's over, then you get up and you quit that. <laughs> you, you grieve in a different way than the intentional. It doesn't mean you're done grieving. It means they, there's this phase of grieving where you just sit and people wait on you because if you wait on yourself, you'll be distracted from your grief. Anybody known somebody do a sitting Shabbat? That's sort of how they do it, right? That's how it's supposed to work. And they cover the nose and all that. Interesting, I mean, you know, we don't know how to grieve very well, I'm pretty sure, as American public. It's interesting to think people have these grieving rites that are this old. It, it, it does work, that's why they do it, right? That's why they do it, yeah. I think that's part of the reason we bring food to people after there's a death, you know, so that they don't have to worry about that. Of course, we're so used to doing things, it's really hard to accept that, you know, because like, we like to do stuff to stay normal. Okay, whatever, don't talk about that. Job says, he gets to talk first, and he says, cursed is the day of my birth. <laughs> Inspiring words, right? And sort of what Job goes on to say is really interesting, something that, that we kind of don't believe anymore, Job sort of says, the reason my birthday is not so good is essentially that um, 
all my life was lived well, and then I was punished for something I didn't do. And in the end, we all go to the place of the dead. In Hebrew, that's Sheol. So they didn't believe at this time in a heaven and hell. We sort of believe in that, which helps us understand why the world doesn't always seem just. Oh, justice must happen later. They didn't believe that. So if you were an infant, or you were a king, or you were a thief, or you were a prostitute, when you died, you all went the same place, the place of the dead. It's really dark there. It's underground. It's sort of like Tartarus or, or Hades. I mean, a lot of people believe in this place of the dead. And Job's saying, geez, we all end up there, and I'm ending up there a broken man after having tried, so cursed be the day of my birth. That's what starts the friends going. The friends then decide to do what all good friends do, give unsolicited advice. <laughs> oh, it's really good. Now you may say along the way, those friends give dumb advice. All unsolicited advice is dumb advice. So it's just you see, to be honest, right? Never in your life has someone given you unsolicited advice and you said, thank you for that pearl of wisdom, I'll go live into that fully. Maybe you did. In general, what happened is you blessed their heart. <laughs> Eliphaz's um, unsolicited advice is, hey friends, look, the righteous don't suffer. This is a precept. It's a proverb. We're going to take that for granted. That means because you suffered, there was a lapse in your righteousness. Now don't worry, friend, because that suffering is really just meant to get you to repent. So discipline the good thing. You should be happy that you suffered because you know you did something wrong and now you can make amends and get on with your life. And of course, when you do that, God will reward you. Remember, he doesn't know what we know. Job didn't do anything bad. And he also represents what we tell our children. <laughs> what goes around comes around, sweetie. Be a good friend, especially when it's tough. It'll work out. We have a secondary thing. And even if it doesn't work out, you can be happy you kept your integrity. Right, so we have a, a fail-safe for when what's true 70% of the time doesn't work out. And by the way, that's true 70% of the time. Don't you think? I mean, in general, that's probably true more often than it isn't. Righteous people don't suffer, and discipline can be a really good thing. In general, those are true. Those are true. We just know in this case it isn't. <laughs> and, and this sort of starts what the book is doing. The book is asking us to consider the difference between Proverbs, once again, and wisdom. Because they're different things. Um, Job says to his friend Eliphaz, that forsaking kindness to a friend is like forsaking kindness to God. That's sort of a bold retort. Because <laughs> he's accusing his friend, right, of forsaking him and forsaking God. Um, this is an interesting thought that sort of gets borne out later in the New Testament. You know, there's a day where Jesus says that the, the people will be separated like sheep and goats. And some people will say, Jesus will say, come on into my kingdom because I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came and visited me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we visit you? We just visited other people. And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. 
So, so that, that idea that Jesus says is not original to him. That's, that's Job. Right? The way we treat other people is indicative of the way we treat God. And what he says, of course, right, really, is that, listen, um, you're not listening to me. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. You're not listening. And you're not listening to God either. You've got your own ideas about who God is and what's right or wrong, and you're not willing to listen. It's a good reply, right? Because they're not. They're not listening. They're trying to validate themselves and their idea of theology and the world and how things work instead of going to the place of suffering with their friends. It doesn't mean they're bad friends. It just means that they're not practicing friendship very well. Job says this other interesting thing. What are human beings, God, that you are mindful of them? This is quoting a psalm that's probably older. So Job probably is, this, this is later, right, than the first part. Anybody ever heard this? What are human beings that you're mindful of them, the son of man, that you care for them? You made us a little lower than the angels. You know this one? That's meant to be positive. <laughs> Job is sort of saying, God, why are you around all the time? I need a break, particularly when you do things like kill all my children and steal my goods. Um, as a little boy, <clears throat> when I learned that God was around all the time, I have to be honest, um, without reading this part of Job, I kind of wanted God to give me breaks too, like when I went to the bathroom. Now, I know that sounds silly, but I didn't particularly want God watching because, you know, like I was self-conscious. And, and I really wanted to bathe on my own too. So if God would wait outside the bathroom, that would have been fine. And uh, that morphed into the idea, of course, that what I was told is since God's with you everywhere and watching everything you do, well, God's like Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice. So, oh, I see that you prayed this morning, but I also see you had an unkind response to Lydia at school. And then you thought that that was a good response. So God was following me around making these notes. That was the image of God that I grew up with. And I'll tell you, if you have that image, you probably feel some real empathy with Job. I mean, geez, God, like, leave me alone. If you're just going to come looking for fault, you're going to find it. So can I have a break? Anybody ever felt like that before? Or just, just, just out of curiosity? That was instilled in me as a young boy. And of course, it's the opposite of grace. It's the opposite of the psalm, right? The idea, of course, is that... Um, God is following us around, utterly, utterly delighted in us. Not in spite of our failures, but because of them. Isn't that a wonderful line? <laughs> Job sort of says here now, oh no, that's too early. Okay, so that's his thing. Like, God just kind of leave me alone. And Bildad can't stand that. <laughs> Because that sounds like the kind of language you don't say in church. It sounds like you got doubt or something. Anybody ever go to church and you weren't allowed to say stuff? Because you might sound bad? Anybody? Yeah, you know, there's questions we didn't dare ask in Baptist youth group. Because that sounds sacrilegious, you know? Or like we didn't really have faith. Of course, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. We weren't allowed to ask those questions. How could you believe in stuff? You weren't even. Okay, anyway. Um, Bildad is a little offended and says, Hey, listen, Job. Bildad says, Hey, listen, Job. Maybe you're right. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong. But maybe one of your kids did. 
It's sort of like the reverse of the parents eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. The children eat sour grapes and their parents' teeth are set. And let me tell you, that one's true. You know that, right? If you've had a kid, you know that the sins of your children will, will come back on you. Especially if they commit a crime in the state of Texas and they're under the age of 17. You're financially liable for that. When they turn 17, this is funny about Texas, uh, they're criminally liable, but you're civilly liable. When they turn 18, they're duly liable, and you're not. Bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. <laughs> I know. So you just pray they make it to 18. <laughs> so they can. Oh, uh, yeah, fair. But this is an interesting thing, isn't it, right? I mean, Bill Dad says, hey, Joe, I'm listening to you, and yeah, maybe, but, you're, but maybe your kids did something wrong. And, and if that's true, right, then there's still some reason something bad happened to you. I mean, the friends are fishing for a reasonable universe. That's what they want. You all fishing for a reasonable universe? I'm suspicious if Job frustrated you, it's because you wanted a reasonable universe, and at the end of the book, you don't get one. Fair? But there's, there's, there's some good thinking in this one, right? This is often true, that our kids do stuff, and it can break us financially, but more important, our kids do stuff, and it breaks our heart. I mean, we know that. And they didn't intend it for evil. It's not like when they dyed their hair pink and got that nose ring, they were thinking, how could I ruin my life? But it did ruin their life. We know that. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm kidding about that, right? Okay. Yeah, well, the world's changing, you know. I don't know if that ruins your life anymore. Job's reply is, listen, you're not listening, and God isn't listening either. God is too powerful to listen, and I can't force God to listen because I'm just a human being. God's all big and stuff. I need a mediator. I need somebody that will make God listen to me so that then God will, un, you know, God will apologize or undo the punishment. Because if God would just listen, God would know I'm innocent. I love this one. The third friend so far says, you probably did do something wrong, you just don't remember. <laughs> I mean, this is good, right? This is good stuff. You just don't remember. And Job says, and this is a really good line, isn't it? All of your proverbs are proverbs of ashes. Now, that's a good one. That's a good one. Super indicting. Because the truth is, friends, I'm just. I'm just. And of course, we know he's right. He is. Proverbs of ashes. That's a really interesting phrase. Um, I read this book called Proverbs of Ashes. It's actually about sort of the damage that bad Christian theology does to our, our sort of our children and adults. And, and it's a good phrase. Anytime something is just really bad theology that results in social injustice, to call it a proverb of ashes. I think that's really quite fair. Uh, comes right out of the book. And really, of course, what it represents is that, once again, his, his friends are choosing some sort of idea or sort of set of core value over the friend that's in front of them. Now, that's an interesting thing. Do you know what kind of proverbs, do you, do you know, when I say proverbs ashes, do you know what I mean? Let me give you some examples. 
a battered woman goes in to the preacher and says, my husband's hit me. And the husband says, well, Jesus suffered for your sins, so go back to him and win him over with your good works. That's what we call Proverbs of Ashes. You could also call that like a proverb straight from hell. Um, but, but, but the nice thing is Proverbs of Ashes. You know some other ones, right? Like when a child dies and people tell the mom or the dad, God wanted your child to be a rose in the garden of heaven. That's a proverb of ashes. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I hope not. People actually say crazy things like that. Um, Eliphaz replies to Job. I mean, listen, human beings are just corrupt. So as I'm sure you're as just as you can be, but you're categorically corrupt. So that's why this happened. Hard to argue with that. Job says, but I do know myself, actually. <laughs> you don't know me, friend, but I know myself. And here's what happened. God broke me. And that's the phrase. God's arrows are sunk deep into me. By the way, is it okay to say that this is sometimes true? Consequences happen to you, and you don't remember earning them, but you did. Is that sometimes true? Um, are people subject to making like mistakes, even good ones? So that one's sometimes true, right? <laughs> it's just that this time it isn't. <laughs> That's what the book is saying. It's, it's often true, but just not this time. Um, Bildad says, well, look, you know yourself and God broke you, but friend, God punishes the wicked. <laughs> you just got to know God punishes the wicked. You got punished, therefore you're, you're wicked. So he really is going way back um, to, to uh, the very first thing that Eliphaz said, which is the righteous don't suffer. He, he's giving you the contrapositive of that, which is the wicked are punished. So in some ways that is new, right? Because the righteous not suffering does not necessarily equal the, the wicked being punished, right? We learned that in geometry when you had to do those proofs. Right, you did inverse statements and contrapositives and all that stuff. Anyway, there he says that. And then <laughs> Job's reply is, I'm literally abandoned by everybody. I'm abandoned by God who won't listen to me because if God would listen, God would know I'm just and I've been unjustly treated. I'm abandoned by you who are choosing Proverbs over empathy. And I'm especially abandoned by your wisdom which isn't wisdom, the Proverbs. And then Job says this thing that if you've been to a funeral in the Episcopal Church, you've heard. I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last shall stand upon the earth, and I shall see for myself, I shall behold God. It's a lovely phrase at a funeral, isn't it? Of course, when Job says that he's not talking about God, the Redeemer is the, one, is the mediator. The Redeemer is the one who's going to make God listen to Job's justice. I don't know if you noticed that. I, I, I listen, I love the passage, but Job is not talking about God. Job's talking about that advocate who will make God listen. Uh, Zophar replies, okay, all that's great. <laughs> Maybe you are just, but you know, Job, there is often evil done on our behalf. This is my summary. I hope this is okay. Is that true? There's evil done on our behalf? 
oh, I think it's more true than we care to realize, you know? It's gonna sound really crazy when I say it, you know, but if you have an investment portfolio, there is evil done on your behalf. Because the easiest money to make is the money that comes at the expense of other people, right? There are these things called like, like um, social justice investment packages. Let me tell you, those come at the expense of people too, right? Uh, low uh, subsidized housing is still carries with it penalties, right? I mean, this is the case. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, you shouldn't have investment portfolios. The other hard thing, right, is like if you shop anywhere, evil was just done on your behalf, right? I mean, it just was. Um, I still shop myself. Um, this is probably very true. You know, it's probably very true. In this case, we know it's not exactly true. <laughs> but it probably is very true. Please notice that even though the friends are wrong, they're mostly right. They're not dumb. They're actually doing what we do, trying to make sense of a world that is often not sensible, and they're doing it with conventional wisdom. They're trying to make the world linear. And, and given that these are pretty good rules of, these are good heuristic reasoning, otherwise known as rules of thumb, right? They're, they're doing what, what we do. Job becomes really impatient. <laughs> and says, uh, I'm gonna die, and I, before I die, it's really important that God hears that I'm innocent. Um, and then Job says something really interesting himself. Listen, you're talking about evil done on our behalf and God punishes the wicked, but I know that the wicked often go unpunished. Seems to be true, doesn't it? I mean, apparently if you're a president you can commit statutory rape with somebody and get off. And I didn't even name which president I'm talking about because there's lots of choices. So you can do that wickedness and go unpunished, particularly if you're in a position of power. I mean, that, that's, that's in general true. This thing that's happened the last three or four months, what an anomaly that people are being outed for not just harassing women, but assaulting them. I mean, it's newsworthy because we, We've never done this before. <laughs> I know people say, oh, I'm so tired of hearing about that. Yeah, and women are tired of being harassed and sexually assaulted, right? I mean, this is an interesting time that we're living in. And, and for the first time, some of it is, is getting recognized. But in general, the wicked can often go unpunished. Remember how important this is in Job, because they don't have hell. When you die, you go to the place of the dead. You don't get punished. Because the good people go there. That's why Job curses the day of his birth. There's no justice after life, and he can't seem to find justice in life. You're going to stop me if I'm missing the argument or, or you don't like something, right? Is this okay? I'm just sort of giving you the cliffs notes. I'm sorry, you read this. It's richer than all this. Um, Eliphaz says something back, which is, Sort of like evil done on your behalf, but a little more dialed in, like, listen, man, you're complicit in social evil. So you may have done, not have done anything intentionally, and maybe you didn't have an investment package that did stuff, but listen, Job, you're a white man, and you bear privileges, which, which is true. I'm glad to be at this because if I said that in the churches I grew up in, I'd get run out the door. 
you know, I mean, honestly, we, we talked, this is this funny thing that happened in the last election style, the poor white man. You know, what about the poor white man's rights? Um, I mean, the, the white man in this country has more rights than anybody. Unless he's Muslim. Because we have a lot more understanding for an Arab Muslim than a white one. And, and, and see, that's our complicity in social evil. That we have more understanding for an Arab Muslim than a Caucasian one. That's, that's the social evil that we belong to. Does that make sense or is that just really weird? <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's interesting. I mean, we have legislation that's supposed to help do that, but of course we do know that, that there is a pay differential still. Is it Iceland? Good for them. Good for them. All 12. All 12 <laughs> men and women. Yeah. I mean, it is easier to do on a smaller scale, right, when everybody buys them. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, this is pretty true. I just want to tell you, I, I actually think, I think, uh, that statement is probably almost 100% true, that we are complicit in social evil. I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine a universe where you're not. Because whether you're, uh, yeah, anyway, enough said, right? I mean, this is just something we wake up and don't ask for, but, but we just are. I mean, just the fact that we live in this country, there's some, there's some social evil, right, in terms of, how small of, a, of the world population we are compared to how much of the resources we use. I have heat on in my house. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you I don't live like that, but I know that, there's, that there are freezing people elsewhere and I'm not sharing. We're not. I know I can't overcome that by myself. Like we all know that. So in some ways we kind of live with this, but here's Eliphaz saying, yeah, like we live with this, but it is still unjust at the end of the day. And, and, he's, and he's right. We just know that this is not why God's doing it. We know that. <laughs> yeah, what's well, just about him being rich when other people aren't? Well, I mean, that's the funny thing, right? In some ways, Job was fulfilling proverbial wisdom, which is when you do good stuff, God gives you stuff. And that's the argument of the accuser, right? God, you're favoring this person. Well, how about some real justice? You know, I mean, that's, that's where the book is, is, that's just chaotic, isn't it? It's a bit chaotic. Of course, Job is a good rich guy because he does share, and we learn that later with, like, all kinds of people. We're, we're, like, two turns away from that. Job replies, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm actually terrified of, I, I, I'm terrified of God, and it doesn't seem that God preserves the righteous. It seems like God preserves the mighty. I mean, I've had that thought before. What's happening, right, is you're getting, you're getting point and counterpoint on Proverbs. Because God doesn't always preserve the mighty, but it seems like it sometimes. It's sort of like saying no good deed goes unpunished, right? Um, Bill Dad's reply is, listen, man, no one is righteous, only God is. And Job's reply is, 
I don't know about God being righteous. I know God's mighty. And I'm not going to relinquish my integrity because I know I didn't do anything to deserve this. And then there's that chapter about wisdom. Where is it from? Who can buy it? How do you learn it? Of course, that's where wisdom is different from Proverbs. You can learn Proverbs by reading a book. You can pay and learn Proverbs from motivational speakers. But wisdom is tougher. You know, I'm not actually convinced I know a guaranteed formula for learning wisdom. This biblical sense of wisdom, right? Um, God made it. God sort of has it. And Job, of course, is looking, looking for God's wisdom, right? And then he starts to lament, hey, I was respected, and now I'm degraded. I helped widows and orphans. I helped my slaves. I helped other people's slaves. And surely, I mean, truly enough, that would be going above and beyond, right? That, that's, that's somebody who is working to overcome social, social evil. And, and, and the defense rests, <laughs> right? This is Job's case. He's done. Did I lose you or miss anything? Was that argument summary okay? Uh, then we get to hear from Elihu, who says really nothing new, right? He's, he's, he's young, we learn, which is um, perhaps written at a time saying that there's something like new and creative and unconventional. Job, uh, Elihu is sort of like the hipster perspective. <laughs> um, it's not really good, you know. Um, Elihu basically says, <clears throat> if it's an okay summary, listen, Job, God is bigger than you. I mean, <clears throat> who are you to question God? That phraseology, which I learned a bunch in my religious upbringing, anybody ever heard that phrase, who are you to question God? Is a phrase, it's as a club that is used in some faith circles to say that when you have creative thinking or when you're not satisfied with traditional theology, you just need to swallow that down because you don't have the right. Yeah, thanks. I mean, how sad, right? And, and of course, that's looked really ugly in, in every denomination with the leading person wielding power over the other people and saying this is how it is regardless of what you think because I'm in charge. Uh, it's a really, it's a really uh, circular logic because once you buy into it, right, it's pretty impervious. Uh, if God always pays, punishes the wicked, then anything bad that happens is because you earned it or deserved it. And, and there's no explaining out of that. I mean, really, that's, that's, that's deductive reasoning. There's a principle, and then everything has to comply with it. Job is inviting us to induce something different based on an example on a story. I, I do wonder about this. Have, have, have you ever been in a faith community where you were afraid maybe not to ask a question but to speak your mind because you were afraid that you would lose standing in that faith community? Anybody? How interesting, right? How normal. It seems like on this point, right, um, <clears throat> work is to be done. I mean, church should be like the one place where you can take risks and be respected anyway. 
because you can't do that anywhere else. It seems like you should be able to do that here, but often it's like the last place you can do that. You know? Isn't that weird? Unfortunate. <laughs> really unfortunate. <clears throat> hey, we can make this place like that. I think we already are in some ways, right? I think we should keep doing that. <laughs> uh, that that's pretty much all I had to say about Elihu. Did, did I miss anything for you? I know I'm kind of giving a summary, but I hope it's a helpful, hopefully it's a helpful, helpful summary. The last bit <clears throat> then is that God shows up, <laughs> unanticipated. Did you know God was going to show up? Notice how God shows up. This is really telling. God shows up in a whirlwind. Now, now I don't know where you come from. I didn't grow up in a place where there's whirlwinds. I grew up in Florida. We call those hurricanes. You, <laughs> they have those here, I'm told. Uh, listen, there's not much positive about hurricanes. Now, I, I don't know anything about cyclones or tornadoes, but in general, those are scary and chaotic things that result in destruction. I mean, very rarely does somebody say, wow, the crops aren't doing well. I hope there'll be a hurricane this year, right? I mean, this is not something that you say. So, so then is now, uh, whirlwinds represent just chaos and potential harm. So please notice that God shows up in that. Telling. And then God does something that seems like <clears throat> what the friends are doing, just a little bit. Seems like God's doing what Job is afraid of. God says, I'm bigger than you. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Job was afraid of that the whole book. But but I think God is doing, in the book, God's doing something a little different from that. Uh, God goes on to talk about the foundations of the earth and about the animal world and uh, talks about how animals, even stupid ones, who live in utter chaos are cared for. If you don't remember this explicitly, it's the ostrich. God says the ostrich is the stupidest animal. <laughs> it doesn't care for its young. It totally abandons its eggs and babies. And I take care of the ostrich. So what you think is chaos, you might benefit from a larger perspective on. Now that's an interesting thought. It's not ultimately satisfying, but there's some truth in it, right? Because we don't like earthquakes. They're bad for business. I mean. And people die when there's earthquakes. <clears throat> but from the planet's perspective, the earthquake is a very good thing. Because if there weren't the earthquake, the planet would blow up, right? I mean, I, I'm not a geologist, but I understand that if there's not some relief from tectonic plates, it's just going to get worse and worse. Because it'll turn volcanic, which would be more catastrophic. It, does that sound right? So, so in one thing that God might be saying in this story is that sometimes we view things too much from our own point of view instead of a global point of view. And, and, and I do think that's sometimes true. Right? Hurricanes are evil because they hurt people, but they're just natural things, and, and they represent relief. They are bad for us, but they're not really bad for the planet. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So it's important to differentiate <coughs> what's inconvenient from what's evil. Well, I think so. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I'm not saying this is a satisfying answer. I, I'm, I'm saying this is probably a proverb. <laughs> Here God speaking a proverb, but it's probably worth thinking about. Some things happen to us that are inconvenient and that doesn't mean that they're evil. We have a really hard thing with this, right? And I just, it's important to do this. You know, medically, we often look at illness as being evil, but it's very natural. It's extremely inconvenient for us. Uh, I, by the way, I don't mean like if you contract stage four brain cancer, you just say, thanks be to God, this is all natural. Because that is really inconvenient, right? I mean, but, but to say that the devil put it there is a little far-fetched. Does, does that make sense what I mean? So sometimes our perspective, sometimes we might create God in our own image, and what's good for us is good, and what's bad for us is evil, and, and the world isn't really like that. Right? We're, we're, we're one entity of the universe. And a lot of things we do are really bad for other things, like the Chinese freshwater dolphin, really bad they're extinct, right? Because people ate them, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> so that was bad for them, right? That was just really evil, in fact, that people ate all the dolphins. For the dolphins, it was evil. For us, it was God rewarding us for our piety because that's a delicious animal, right? You know it was delicious because they ate the last one. <laughs> but don't park there. Again, that, that's, one, that's one thing you could hear. Another thing I think that's helpful to hear up front, right, is that God is sort of saying, <clears throat> speaking from a point of chaos, listen, um, you may be blaming me, but, but I am in the chaos, and there is order, I'm creating order that you can't see. Now, I didn't think that means that everything happens for a reason. That God is creating order out of chaos does not mean that God gives children leukemia to teach their parents a lesson. Because that's just sick, right? That's just really sick. Instead, this is like in Genesis chapter 1 when we talked way, way back Right? The rabbis say there's already water and God makes the world out of the water. Doesn't tell you where evil came from. Doesn't tell you where chaos comes from. Just tells you what God's doing about it, which is creating some order out of chaos. I mean, that's a Jewish worldview. That's one way to hear God is, listen, you're blaming me for suffering, but what I'm actually trying to do is create order out of it. Lot, there are a lot of possibilities here. And I'm not going to speak for God. Job's reply, of course, is what he was afraid he'd have to say. I'm so small, you're so big, I'll just shush. And then God continues talking. <laughs> and specifically, God talks about two monsters that God made. The behemoth. Who knows what that is? I mean, it's a big thing, right? This is where we get the word behemoth, which means really big thing, right? Is it a hippo? I don't know. Is it a, a brachiosaurus? I don't know. It's a big thing, and it was really inconvenient for people, and God made it. And even worse, God made the Leviathan, which God says, even gods are overwhelmed by the Leviathan I made. Now remember, see, this presumes there's other gods, and they're scared of the Leviathan, which is the Loch Ness Monster, a, a crocodile, uh, the, the Kraken, right? I mean, who knows what it is? But, but God said, listen, 
I made that stuff for the sport of it. And, and this is an interesting reply. Again, it's, I don't think it answers the question. I don't think it answers the question. I think it represents another proverb to think about. <clears throat> I learned as a little kid in church that um, before Adam and Eve ate that fruit, everybody was a vegetarian. And then when they did that, they ruined the world, which is why saber-toothed tigers are now predators. Before that, they weren't. They were vegetarian. It's just that the fossil record doesn't bear that out because they can't, they can't chew that stuff, right? I mean, they can just really eat meat and blood. And this is a weird thing to think through. So God created the world where there's predators and prey. God made it like that. And, and why? Well, I don't know, but God said it was good. Now, that's really a stumper to sit and think on, isn't it? That God created predation. We don't usually think about it that way, but, but that's, an interesting, that's an interesting stretcher. Anyway, God says this is it, and Job says, uh, I repent in dust and ashes. The things you've said are too wonderful for me. And then how curious the little epilogue, right? A couple of things happen that are really strange. God says, everything the friends said was wrong, and they need you, Job, you have to sacrifice for them because I won't even accept their sacrifices. All their conventional wisdom was wrong, and it was sinful of them to say it. Now, now that's pretty decent stuff, some of it, right? I mean, I've spent the whole night saying that's mostly true. God says it's wrong. And then God says this other interesting thing, that what Job said is right. <laughs> it's right that God won't listen because God's too big? It's right that God needs a meteor, an advocator? Or it's right that Job aired his fears and his angers and complaint publicly? We don't know. But God says what, what Job said was fine. And then it's tempting to say, that God's bed is over, so Job gets the stuff back now, right? He gets all the stuff, and he even gets 10 more kids. But that's not a good reading, because children are irreplaceable. Most children are irreplaceable, right? It's unlikely that all 10 were. So, so um, one way to read this is that, aha, look, Job gets his stuff back because he's good. Another way to read it is that the ending actually introduces more chaos to the story. Because there's no reason he should have got any of that stuff. I mean, God sort of says, this happened and now we're done. <laughs> and then they're not done, which is really weird. The last bit that's interesting is that Job's daughters have names. And rarely are women named. Notice that the boys aren't named. That's really rare. Uh, that, that's another sort of chaotic thing to happen, that his daughters would have names and his sons wouldn't. Okay, that was my whirlwind tour of the Book of Job. I know you've got questions and disappointments with this book, and I'd be really happy to, to talk with you about them. I still don't buy this, the thing that it is, number one, well, I do kind of now that I know that there are many gods. But I still don't understand how a God who's loving and, and, and all-knowing and vast and all that can take and have the prosecutor come up to him and go, 
this man over here because he's a good man. Yeah, but then that's not what's happening, right? The prosecutor is saying. The prosecutor is saying he is a good man because you give him everything he needs and everything he wants. But he is a righteous man because he's doing what he's supposed to do. He hasn't broken the rules. The bottom line is he's a righteous man. Yeah, I, I and think. God said, uh -huh. well, I know he's good. Well, you go ahead down there and jack with him. Just see what happens. Yeah. And then we'll bring three friends along and we'll take and pound him to, to dirt. And then I'll show up in a whirlwind and say, you know, don't listen to those people. You were right, Joe. Here's ten more kids that they can make your life miserable that you now get to worry about. And here's your 7,000 camels and all that other stuff that I stripped from you. Mm -hmm. And by the way, don't have any questions about how I gave it back to you. Yeah, you see, just accept that, you know, poof, the next day you wake up, there's 10 more kids. Yeah. See, I think, I think you've actually really done what the book is inviting us to consider. I mean, really, I want you to think, think how forward this book actually is. The real critical part of the book is where is wisdom to be found? And, and I think if we read the book as teaching us the answer, if we read the book as a proverb, instead of as an invitation to consider wisdom, we've missed the book. You know, you know I said before that Job is my favorite book, and it is. It's my favorite book of why not to be a Christian. Oh, actually, I think it's, I think, well, sure, I think it's really great. I mean, I, this, this goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago, right? If, if your faith, I mean, I, I really think this is what the book is about, right? Why do we have faith and why do we love other people? Is it because what they give us or is it because who they are? I really think that's what the book's about. And the, the Christianity I grew up in, then, you should be a Christian because it's advantageous to you. And I think the book asks, what if it weren't? <laughs> What if, what if your faith was exactly deleterious to you? Would you love God anyway? I mean, that's a really tough question to grapple with, isn't it? Well, that's the whole, the whole question of the book. I think it is. That's why I think it's a fantastic book. I think it's a fantastic book for that reason. Because, right, inside every single one of us is, well, I'll just speak for myself, right? I mean. Well, I believe there's advantages to being Christian. And this book asked me to have conversations with that belief. I think, and of course it's not, this isn't a Christian book at all, right? This is a Jewish book. And, and um, it's really about why bad things happen to good people. And in addition to it's, it's about what kind of friends we're supposed to be. Friends who validate ourselves in the middle of adversity or friends who validate other people, right? I mean. They, not one time do they validate Job. Not one time do they give him empathy. They give him sympathy, and they self-justify their, their religious and moral precepts and themselves. Well, and judgmental as well. I'm judgmental. Really I'm judgmental a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is a funny thing, because in, in, in general, right, I've been a friend like this lots of times. I'm good at not being this friend with like parishioners in my office. I'm good at being this friend with people who I know really well. I mean, 
surely my wife just wants me to tell her <laughs> what she should do next. <laughs> that is yet to work out well. I mean, that's what's interesting about this book is it's so representative. It's so representative. And sure enough, I think the most representative thing of the friends and Joe both is they are looking for a linear universe. Yeah, I think there's even another way to read God's presence in the whirlwind, right? I mean, one way to read the whirlwind is God saying, again, like, you are having problems with the world um, because your understanding is so limited, so just trust me. Um, but then I think the question is, is it wise to walk with a God that says stuff like that, or is that a proverbial God? Do, do you know what I mean? I think the question invites, the book invites so many questions. It doesn't tie anything up in a, in a bow. I mean, even God is destabilizing as a character. And maybe that's the point of the book. is <laughs> not that we say, oh, God, you're right, I'm wrong. But I didn't really think it is like that, God. So, so maybe the God of the book isn't the God we worship. And this is what the Bible does best. I'm positive. I thought about it. If I were going to write a book chapter, I, did, I couldn't write it well. You know, I always wonder, <clears throat> what would your unique contribution be? Who would care? I, I think the whole approach I've been given to the Bible is it's a book of Proverbs. Read it and you'll know wisdom. Study it and you'll know wisdom. Memorize it and you'll know wisdom. And Job asked this question, that's not how you learn wisdom. <laughs> Otherwise, everyone would have it. Instead of the Bible being a textbook, I think it's really a great conversation starter. And what if that's our whole approach to this book? Is It is pointing out the things we often believe in that are sometimes wrong, viewpoints that we have in God that we self-defeat ourselves with, not so that we can quit, but so that we can say, well, what next? <laughs> what if this is there to push our conversation about where God is in the world and in suffering instead of to end it? That's where it's a good book. If this settles all your questions, well, I think, I think it's disappointing. Because life's, I mean, this is, a, this is a complicated view of life, but life's even more complicated than that, don't you think? I mean, you know, this is 41 chapters. Well, Joe perceives that. But I think, again... So I just want to, come, but I just want to come back to this one, Lila, because I think, I think, 
Job's statement, what are humans that you're mindful of us, that you follow around with a list and you look at us when we use the bathroom and we're exposed and vulnerable when, when other people don't do that. I mean, I don't think God's like that. <laughs> but part of me does think God's like that. I sure grew up with that being formed in my identity, that God is like that. And if God's like that, God is your adversary. I mean, what I was taught, right, is that God loves you, but he's probably going to send you to hell. And, and that's an adversary. <laughs> I wasn't taught that God is fighting every day or doing everything in God's power to keep you from making even a, a suffering the natural consequences of your actions. I didn't learn anything like that. I learned, listen, God gave you a gift one time, and you'd better really like it. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't even get it anymore. Like, if you don't have enough gratitude for Jesus, God will put you in hell forever for that. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I internalized. That kind of God's an adversary. I mean, I've come to believe that. That kind of God is an adversary. Because there's no larger life than that. There's just fear and trembling. So if you're seeing that God is adversarial in the book, I think the question is, is God really like that? Or do I sometimes put God in that role? Please. Well, we of course never know because there's not one author anywhere. There's at least one, two, three different ones. So what did which what did which one believe? I think it's got a lot of different themes. This guy thought the book had one theme. This guy thought the book had one theme, Elihu, and that's why he's in it. But I think he's wrong. I didn't think that's the main theme. I think the main theme is point and counterpoint and the difference between Proverbs and wisdom. Proverbs and wisdom deal with evil. They do. And rewards and punishment and and. I mean, I mean, I think that's the whole, the whole point is, you know, wisdom is about discerning the way. And Proverbs are about that, too. But Proverbs are passed down, and, and wisdom is something different. I mean, did you ever memorize, did you ever... I mean, think about the wisdom that you got. I mean, in general, my wisdom, it's not even guaranteed from experience. I didn't have a lot of it, right? There's certain, there's certain bits of wisdom I've, 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 I've garnered, but I didn't get them because I read some book. I didn't get them because somebody told me. I, I didn't get them even the second time around. I mean, there's, there's situations in my life I've been in over and over and over again, and I still haven't figured out the wise response. <laughs> and no one's been able to point me to it. I got lots of proverbs, but I don't always have wisdom. And Job asked a really great question. Where do you get it? <laughs> From your priest. I mean, we know that. <laughs> I mean, There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. And, and there definitely is, right? And we talked about this two weeks ago. And I think there's a difference between wisdom and Proverbs. Proverbs are heuristic reasoning 
They're often true. They're just not always true. These guys are mostly right, just not this time. And, and I think the, the, the part of even the, the, the thing that's different, right, is the way that they embody Proverbs instead of embodying wisdom. I mean, once again, I think it's wise to validate other people. I think that's wise. It's wise to be empathetic. They do neither of those things. They never show empathy, and they never validate Job. They say, actually, your experience is invalid. <laughs> your feelings are wrong. Isn't that a lovely apology? You ever had somebody apologize and say, I'm sorry you were hurt by that? <laughs> really what they're saying is, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Bless your heart. See, I, so I hope I didn't ruin this book for you. But I do think it's there to start conversations, right? I mean, the, 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 the truth is, I have learned some really good lessons from suffering in my life. I've learned some really good lessons. In fact, I'm the person I am today because of suffering, some of which I didn't deserve. I expect the same is true about you. I don't believe God engineered that. That's hard to live with, <laughs> you know? Sometimes good stuff comes out of suffering. Not always, and I don't think God ever causes it. And sometimes bad things happen to good people. I think often bad things happen to good people. And, and there's this weird thing, right? Even though we know that and we shouldn't take that laying down, we, we also sort of know that we can orient ourselves toward the world with suspicion and, and resentment and malice or with gratitude. <laughs> Knowing that it's not always fair. You, you, you know, I mean, so in some ways we're justified with not being grateful. Well, that's a crappy way to live. I mean, this is the kind of stuff the book is asking us to talk about, I think. You know? I mean, not to just be optimistic people all the time, foolishly optimistic, and pretend like suffering's not real. The suffering is very real in the book. I mean, no one's figured this out yet, right? No one's figured this out. I haven't figured it out. If you do, write Job Volume 2, and, and uh, I'll help you translate it into Hebrew, and we'll tuck it away in a cave and make an archaeological discovery. You know, it'll be great. Uh, yeah, but I hope this is fun. I mean, I hope, I hope it's helpful to approach a book of the Bible and think through what the Bible is even for to begin with. Is it there to be our pedagogue and tell us exactly what to do, or the pedagogue that asks questions to draw us out of the places we've chosen to rest. And, and maybe part of what you say is, I don't like that God. Good. Then which God do you like? And which God that you, do you like? What about the God you like is also just and righteous? And how can you follow that? You, you know, I mean, I think that's a really, really good conversation to have. Well, somebody else had the last word, and that's good. Now, next week, <laughs> next week, I, we're not going to meet next week. I'm not going to be here, so we'll, we'll get two weeks, and then we'll do 
hope, which would be lovely. We'll get some hope after suffering. So see you in two weeks. Thanks for being here.